Let's get into our text today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, so please stand if you have your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 19. Here is God's Word for God's people. Now if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and your still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. Here is again God's word for God's people. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we gather here this morning under your authority, by your command. We gather together today as people who can know that we are forgiven and we stand in a right relationship with you because of the work of Jesus, his life given in our place, and most importantly, his victorious resurrection. And it is that which we gather today to celebrate, to reflect on, and to rejoice in together. So I pray that this morning as we look into your word that you would just simply captivate our hearts once again, where we've grown cold and uh, apathetic towards these truths, I pray that you would stir within us just a recognition of the glory that has been won for us. And so I just pray that you would use this time to cause us to know you more, to see you more clearly, and to love you more deeply. And we ask these things in the name of our risen Savior. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning and happy Easter to you all. If you don't know me, my name is Rich and I am one of the pastors here. And it is my honor this morning to be able to open God's word with you. You know, Easter has always been a time of year that I have loved ever since I was a young kid. Actually, I was uh, born on Easter morning many years ago. Um, and I thought that, uh, you know, once I was old enough to realize, you know, that I was born on Easter, that every year I was going to have my birthday on Easter, right? And I just thought that that would be awesome. Um, but Easter is kind of a tricky holiday, and I didn't realize the whole winter solstice thing and the whole moon cycle that throws off the holiday. And so every year I kept wondering, is my birthday this year going to be on Easter? And I didn't, I didn't want my birthday to be on Easter because I was, you know, super spiritual as a kid and thought it would be nice to, to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. It was because of the candy, right? It was because I thought that if my birthday was on Easter, then I could probably get away uh, with eating as much candy as possible. And for me, Easter always had the best candy. Um, in our family growing up, we, we didn't uh, celebrate Halloween, and uh, so I missed out on that whole uh, thing. And so then Valentine's Day came along, and the candy was terrible, those nasty, you know, chalky hearts, or the uh, grab bag, you know, mystery boxes that you didn't know if you are going to get toothpaste or caramel. And so I wanted nothing to do with Halloween, but Easter, Easter had the good candy, right? Like an eight-inch solid chocolate rabbit. What kid doesn't love that? 
It was always a, a major bummer if, that, if, if you got the hollow rabbit. That was always such a disappointment. <laughs> um, I didn't like jelly beans. Jelly beans are, are terrible, right? Um, my wife actually, you know, just so you know her, it's like her only flaw that she has is that she loves jelly beans. Like the, <laughs> the nasty, like just the original Brock's kind, not the, not the good ones, but she just loves those jelly beans anyway. Um, but I've, I've gotten past that, I think, generally. Um, but yeah, I love the candy. You know, Cadbury cream eggs. I, I can't stomach the thought of eating one of those now, but as a kid, I would love slurping out that gooey, sugary <laughs> substance or whatever that was inside of there. And so I, every year, I always just imagine, what would it be like if my birthday actually was on Easter? Little did I know that I'd actually have to wait until 2057 before it shows up again. So... <laughs> Um, maybe in my 70s, we'll see what kind of candy we have at that point. But, uh, but let me ask you this morning as we get started, have you ever asked yourself the question, what if? What if? You see, there's, there are certain moments throughout history, even in our own lives, that have cascading results, that have massive rippling implications. These things that are known as tipping points, or a defining moment, or a, a watershed event. Historically, people have asked many of these what-if questions, such as, what if Columbus never set sail? What if Martin Luther didn't nail his 95 theses to that church door? What if the South had won the Civil War? What if the Archduke of Austria was never assassinated? Could we have avoided World War I? What if Japan didn't attack Pearl Harbor? More recently, what if COVID-19 never showed up? What if somebody had never eaten that bat or been created in that lab, wherever you land on that, I don't know. But uh, what if COVID-19 never showed up? What if an election had been a little different? Maybe in your own life, maybe you reflect, what if you had gone to a different school? What if you had pursued a different career? If when you were younger, you just made better financial decisions, what might your life be like now? And we can often be plagued by many different what-if questions. But in this passage that we look at this morning, we are asked to consider the biggest what-if question that you can imagine. And you see, at the end of his letter to this young church in the area that we now know as the nation of Greece, the Apostle Paul reminds this young church group of believers of the turning point in human history. And he offers his readers this sequence of, of, of logical conclusions which they must reckon with in regards to this watershed event. And this event, which for the Apostle Paul was a non-negotiable historical reality, and it's that which still calls us to gather here this morning, 2,000 years after this text was written, and that event namely is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in this text, for Paul, the stakes could not be higher for what we believe actually happened on that first Easter morning. Because if it's true, it changes everything. And so I want us to just walk through Paul's simple logic in these few verses. Paul begins the chapter, chapter 15, by reminding the Corinthians of the simple gospel message that he first brought to them on his second missionary journey that established this church. And that message was, that which is of most importance, 
that Christ died, he was buried, and that he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. And then in verse 12, he shifts his argument a little bit, and we see his first if-then statement. And he basically presents this, this scenario where he says that if he has been going around preaching that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then he says, then how is it possible that some of you say that there is no resurrection? So why does he bring this up? Well, when Paul says and references this phrase, some of you say that there is no resurrection, that reveals to us that that this idea or teaching philosophy had crept into the church. And this, this belief was that there was no physical resurrection of the body. Possibly this idea had, had come from kind of Greek philosophy of the day. Maybe a dualism that saw the, the, the body and the flesh and the physical world as, as evil and all that mattered was really kind of the spiritual realm. And maybe the Corinthians had begun to kind of spiritualize for themselves the resurrection of believers. Maybe that Jesus is simply raised from the dead in the heart as we kind of respond to the gospel. But Paul, in, in, in this passage, wants to make sure that they understand the implications of this kind of belief. And so what he does is that he, he, he begins by assuming, for the sake of his argument, that what they are saying is true. If there is no resurrection, then that means that Christ has not been raised. And he proceeds to then draw out this cascading list of implications that would come from this conclusion. And he actually presents seven consequences that follow if Christ has not been risen. And so I want us just to walk through what Paul tells us here this morning. In verse 14, is where we first see him take this up, and he says this. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, he says, the first implication is this, then our preaching is vain. He starts off strong, like, like not just like that we've, we've kind of maybe missed it on a, on a minor point of doctrine. We've just kind of gotten off a little bit. No, for, for, for Paul, the stakes are massive. He says that if Christ has not been risen, then our preaching is in vain. Apart from the historical reality of the empty tomb, Paul recognizes that all of his missionary journeys, all of his preaching in the synagogues, all of his gospel presentations, all of his time spent discussing and debating in the public square, all of his church plants, all of his evangelism, all of the disciples that have been made were for nothing. And for us today, if Christ has not been raised, then opening this book every week is simply a waste of all of our time. We might as well all be home watching the final round of the Masters this morning. If you're not into golf, might as well be out just enjoying this beautiful, glorious spring day. What are we doing in here? Do you feel the weight of what Paul is saying? The second consequence, he, he doubles down. He says, not only is our preaching in vain, but he says also, your faith is in vain. Meaning that it is lacking in truth. He says, this, if Christ is not, not risen from the dead, if he remained in the grave, then our faith is bankrupt. It has nothing on which to stand. It has nothing that holds it up. You see, the thing that we have to realize is that the Christian faith is an inherently historical faith. It is grounded in historical realities. 
You said we, we do not just believe in some concept of, of God out there who is unknowable, some kind of, of ultimate higher power, some unknown mover. But we believe in a God who is actually active in human history because He is the creator and the author of it. And He entered in and revealed Himself to us in this world. Jesus' life was not just some kind of storybook example to us, but He was an actual man who lived, who breathed, who walked this earth. Jesus is not a spiritual icon that we just learn important lessons from, but He actually came to be our substitute. And our faith rests fully on His actual birth, His sinless life, His physical death, and His bodily resurrection. D.A. Carson helpfully uh, helps us understand this implication when he writes these words to us. He says, We must see that unlike other religions, the central Christian claims are irreducibly historical. He says, if somehow you could prove that Gautama the Buddha never lived, would you destroy the credibility of Buddhism? He says, no, of course not. The plausibility and credibility of Buddhism depends on the internal coherence and attractiveness of Buddhism as a system with all of its variations. It depends not a whit on any historical claim. If somehow you could prove that the Hindu god Krishna never existed, would you destroy Hinduism? No, of course not. If the ancient Greeks had thousands of gods, then the Hindus have millions. The complex vision of Hinduism in which all reality is enmeshed in one truth in no way depends on the existence of any of them. If Krishna were to disappear from the pantheon of the Hindu gods, you could always go down the street to the Shiva temple instead. Consider Islam. A Muslim certainly must confess that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet. But Muhammad's historical existence does not in itself determine the Muslim's understanding of God. But suppose you ask this question to an informed Christian. Do you believe that the God of the Bible might have given his revelation to someone other than Jesus of Nazareth? The question is not even coherent. Because Jesus is the revelation, the revelation that entered history in the incarnation. This is a historical revelation. You either prove that Christ never lived, he never died, and never rose from the dead, or declare that such details are unimportant and you have destroyed Christianity utterly. See, our faith is only as good as the object on which it is secured. Which is why over and over, the writers of Scripture, the apostles, set forth their witness as a testimony to what they saw. John, in, in, in his letter, wrote these words, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, not which we have imagined, not which we, we kind of thought of, but what we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, We've looked at. Our hands have actually handled. We proclaim this concerning the word of life, that the life appeared. We have seen it, and we testify to it. It is a historical reality, and Paul declares that if Christ is not risen from the dead, our faith is simply in vain. 
He gives another reason in verse 15 where he says this. He says that we are all liars. He says we've been found to be misrepresenting God if we've been going around proclaiming this thing that happened. And in fact, it's impossible that it could have happened. Paul and the other apostles, the entire early church, had one primary message to spread the news that Christ had died and rose from the dead. And if they had been traveling all over the world, if they'd been spreading their message and it never happened, then they were false witnesses. They made it up. It's just a big Ponzi scheme. Which takes them to his next conclusion. In verse 17, he, he comes back to this idea of faith, and he says not only is our faith vain, but he says our faith is futile. The word here is the idea of useless. It is without result. It doesn't accomplish anything. We have to realize that we are not saved by mere thoughts about a resurrected Messiah, but by his actual substitutionary life. We don't just receive Jesus into our hearts as some kind of spiritual figure, but we receive his atoning life given in our place. There are some who would identify themselves as Christians in some sense, but uh, we would, would see themselves as more progressive, who uh, you know, see the resurrection as, as something that's maybe uh, too hard to, to, for us in our, in our modern sensibilities to really accept. And so they will say something like this, a quote that I found, that Jesus' resurrection metaphor tells us that no matter what kind of Good Friday event shatters our life, Jesus gave us the tools to turn it into an Easter through love. And if that is only what our faith is, that it's faith in some kind of metaphor to give us inspiration in our lives, then Paul says it is futile. It doesn't accomplish anything. And he says, if our faith is futile, his fifth consequence is this, that we are still in our sins. He says, apart from the resurrection of Jesus, there is no covering for sin. And why, you might ask, well, wasn't it just Jesus' death on the cross that paid for our sins? Couldn't that have just been enough if Jesus just lived and then he gave his life for us? If he wasn't raised from the dead, then he's just another guy who died. You see, how do we know that his death actually accomplished anything? How do we actually know that, that it was accepted by God as the payment for sins? It's because of the resurrection. His resurrection affirms that the payment for sin has been made in full. Which is why Paul wrote in Romans 4 that Jesus was delivered up for our sins and he was raised for our justification. See, the resurrection is the divine announcement that Christ's death for us has been vindicated, that it accomplished its purpose, that he gave his life in our place to pay for our sins and it was received in full. And thus, the grave could not contain Jesus, but he had to rise from the dead victorious over sin and death. And so if you are looking to be freed from your guilt, to be rid of your shame, there is no answer apart from Christ. All of the deviances of our heart, the struggles and failures of our past will continue to haunt us because there is no covering for sins. We can try to psychologize it and explain those things away as to, to why they happened or why we are the way they are, but there is no actual means to pay for them, for us to find forgiveness. 
apart from the resurrected Christ. And you can try and try, but there is no freedom from the guilt and the shame that all of humanity deals with every day. His sixth answer is this. The sixth consequence in verse 18, he says also that that then those all who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. All deceased believers are lost forever. Those who have died for their faith, those who have, have stayed faithful to Jesus to the end and passed on, if Christ is not risen, then they are lost forever. We can imagine that they are in a better place or that their essence will be absorbed into the universe. But without the resurrection, we are left with speculative mysticism. It brings us finally to his last conclusion that kind of comes in two parts. In verse 19, he says this. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only... He says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then the best that this whole Jesus thing can offer you is temporary hope and momentary inspiration in this life. You see, there are some out there who might say, well, it's, it's better to live as a Christian even if it's not true. Because, you know, at least like Christians have some sense of purpose and it uh, seems like they get along quite well. And so even if it's not true, you know, whatever works for you, go for it. Isn't that kind of the idea of the day? If, if, if your faith works for you, if that's where you find, find, find help, then, then go for it. For me, it's you know, getting out into nature and just being outside. For others, it might be in crystals or, or whatever else. But it's this idea that, hey, hey if it works for you and, and, and offers you some comfort, then go for it. It's the idea that faith is kind of a placebo. You know, if, you're, if, if any of you have ever parented four or five-year-olds, then you probably know the, the magical power of a Band-Aid. Uh, my, my youngest son uh, has been going through this, this phase where anytime he gets a small scrape or a bump or anything, even if he's not really bleeding, he's, he's crying, he's, a, he's, he's so consumed by it, and what he wants is a Band-Aid to make it feel better. You'd be like, hey, dude, it's, it's not even bleeding. A Band-Aid's not going to do anything. I, and it doesn't matter. He believes that that Band-Aid is going to help him. And then through all the tears, you can open up the Band-Aid, you can put it on him, and suddenly the tears dry up and he is just fine. It's magic. And some people kind of want to view even faith like that. Whatever faith you can find to be the band-aid on your life, then go for it. If it works, if it offers you some comfort. But if Christ is not raised, Paul is telling us, that our faith is then just an intellectual pursuit of religion attempting to insert meaning into an otherwise nihilistic universe. Our faith is no mere utilitarian inspiring narrative just to get us through the day. And if we identify as Christians because it suits us, it kind of fits in with our life, or it offers us some kind of perception of spiritual grounding, or because the Christian community is such a nice group of people that we enjoy being around. If that is all that, that, that Jesus can offer us right now here in this life, then look what Paul's final conclusion is. He basically says, if all of this is true, if this is actually the situation, the condition, apart from the resurrection of Christ, then he says, we 
are of all people most to be pitied. People should feel sorry for us. You know, there are a lot of sad conditions in the world, right? A lot of people that are, that are at, the, at the bottom who are struggling through, through poverty and difficulty. And at the time of this writing, certainly Paul knew that in the landscape of the world in the ancient context of this book. And Paul says, out of all of them, out of all of the, the pitiful situations that you can find out in the world, the most desperate places that you can find people, above them all would be someone who believed and put everything on this truth and it turned out to be false. To spend your whole life living and believing a lie ultimately would put you in the most pitiful place in all of humanity. The people should feel sorry for us if this is not true. Do you feel the weight of, of Paul's argument here? I know this is Easter Sunday and this just feels like kind of heavy and kind of weighty, right? But do you see, see what he's calling us to reflect on to see the significance of this? But he doesn't stop there. Might I draw your attention to verse 20? Look at the text. Look at what Paul says next. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, Paul and the other disciples of Jesus believed this with the utmost certainty. They had no doubts about it. Well, Thomas did it first. He didn't want to believe it. Couldn't get his head around it. And then he saw the scars from the cross. And he declared instantly, my Lord and my God. Paul didn't originally believe. In fact, as he spent his, his life and his efforts trying to persecute the church to squash out this silly Jesus movement initially in his life, then one day he had an encounter on the road to Damascus and he was confronted by Jesus that he was risen from the dead and it changed everything. The entire course and trajectory of his life was then spent proclaiming that truth. And all of Jesus' disciples, all of these men, when they encountered the resurrected Jesus, they were confronted with the undeniable reality of resurrection life. And they never wavered on this, and they ultimately gave their lives in defense and declaration of the fact that they knew that Jesus had risen. And Paul wrote this book to us so that we too can have assurance that He is risen, and He is risen indeed. Maybe you're here today, maybe somebody invited you along, um, it's Easter's a nice spring holiday and going to church is what we do. We are so glad that you're here with us, glad that you're here to celebrate with us. But maybe you're here and you're still a little skeptical. Really, this whole rising from the dead thing, it's, it sounds a little too mystical, a little too unscientific. Not sure if in our modern age we can still believe these things. For all of us, there is a challenge to Investigate the historical realities that are claimed here. 
in just the previous verses, Paul actually gives us a list of, of, of individuals and people that he knew had seen the resurrected Christ. Investigate the gospel accounts that have been handed down to us. You can go on from that and, and look at the secular sources that have been left to us that attest to the life of Jesus and to the early beliefs that existed concerning His resurrection. There is plenty of evidence out there to affirm the credibility of these claims. But might I also ask you, what else is hindering your faith in Jesus? Is it just a struggle to recognize his, his claim on your life, what that might actually mean for you? But let me ask you, and let me ask all of us, have you considered what if Christ is risen? What if He is risen? Because you see in this text, Paul offers us this devastating picture of, of what it would look like if Christ never rose from the dead. And he doesn't explicitly tell us in this, but I believe his intention is for us as the reader is to recognize the logical assumption that exists. That if Christ is risen, then the exact opposite of all of these things that he just listed is actually true. You see, if Paul were to rewrite this in the affirmative, he would say, if Christ is risen, then our preaching is not in vain, but it is filled with power. It is not empty, but it has substance to it. If Christ is raised, then the gospel actually is the power of God unto salvation. If Christ is risen, then the same power that raised Him from the dead is at work in you and is at work in me. If Christ is risen, then our faith is not empty, it is not bankrupt, but it is incredibly invaluable. It is backed up and grounded in truth. If Christ is risen, then the Apostle Paul, the other apostles, and us today, we are not liars, we are not deceivers, but we are those who have been entrusted with a message of hope that the world needs. If Christ is risen, our faith is not useless, but it is eternally effective. Your faith is the means by which Christ's work of redemption is applied in your life. As we believe that, that, that His sinless life was lived for us, that Jesus went to that cross on Good Friday and gave His life as an atoning substitute for our sins. He took upon all the wrath of God upon Himself for us. He was laid in the grave and rose victorious. And as we are united to Christ, we too die to sin and we are raised again to new life. And that is granted to us by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus. And if that is true, if Christ is risen, then all of our sins can actually be forgiven. We can be freed from the shame of our past, unleashed from the guilt of yesterday. And we can be declared righteous before God. We no longer have to be ruled from our flesh, but we can be freed not only from the penalty from sin, but also freed from the power of sin in our own lives so that we can have an answer for our addictions, for our struggles, for the darkness of our heart that God wants to, to, wants to reshape and change in us. Our brokenness can be healed and our sins can be eternally wiped away. 
See, if Christ is risen, then those who have died in Christ will be raised again. The beautiful legacy of those who have gone before us is not in vain. Those who have have been martyred and given their lives for the sake of the gospel. Those who we know who, who, who loved Jesus to the very end, who have died. This is not the end for them and for us. It doesn't mean that we don't actually experience loss and grief. Even this week in this body, the reality of the current momentary sting of death has been felt. Some come in here with heavy hearts, having lost a loved one. Some of you, in the recent years, have lost a father or a mother, a brother or a sister, and even, even regularly feel the, 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 the grief that that has brought into your life, and you struggle with that. But the hope of the resurrection of Christ offers us hope for those who are in Christ will be raised again. It means that we don't grieve like those who have no hope, who have no answers. But we have a hope that one day they will be raised like Christ. And if Christ is risen, then our hope in Christ is not just a temporary salve for our confused souls, but it is an eternal hope that reaches back into our present struggles And it offers us life. This is what Peter said when he wrote his letter where he said that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just something we look at out there, but it is something that we possess now that reshapes and changes us even now. And what might Paul conclude this section with if this is all true? If Christ is risen from the dead and all of these things are ours, then we are most to be, dare I say, envied. People should long to have what we possess. Why should Christians be those most envied? Because we possess what humanity longs for. We have the answers to why we're here to what is our purpose, to where we can find hope. Christians should be envied for their unexplainable peace, their constant and stable joy through all the seasons of the ups and the downs of life. Should be envied for our ability to love and to forgive because we recognize how loved we have been by God and how much we have been forgiven. These are things that we possess not because we have found the secret to meditation or just the right coping mechanism but because these things have been granted to us through the life and the death of Jesus. And so today, friends, today is a day to celebrate. Because today is a reminder that all of these realities are true for us. So I hope that you do have a a ham roasting uh, uh, in the oven I hope that this afternoon you have some steaks to put on the grill. I hope that you have a good bottle of wine to open and share around the table with friends because we, as people of the resurrection, should be those who know how to celebrate because we have all of these realities made possible for us. 
And as I reflected on this text this week, I was just struck by Paul's honesty. You know, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't offer a bunch of caveats. He doesn't give a backup plan. He doesn't hedge his bets. It's all or nothing. Either this Jesus is the risen and ruling Christ or he is a complete fraud. And Paul pushes all of his chips on the table and says, I am all in because I know for certain that this is true. So the question is, are we all in as well? We're about to witness one who is also declaring this confession. Going to step into the waters of baptism. And we get to see this beautiful picture of one entering in and being, being buried with Christ in the likeness of His death. But we're not going to hold her under the water, not just because that would be weird, but because we're going to raise her out as a declaration of resurrection life that she possesses as a gift from God. So one final question. Would it matter in your life this week if this wasn't true? If this wasn't true, would it change anything? Because if you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was not in that tomb on that first Easter morning, but He was raised from the dead, how massively should that shape our lives? Massively shape the joy that we, that we find every day. The way that we love others around us. The, the, the heart that we have to share this news with those around us. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of us. It doesn't matter if we're, we are viewed as pitiful. Like It makes sense. But if we possess truth, how does it shape and change our lives every day? So church, let us today, every day, every time we come together, let us be a people who know how to celebrate our risen Christ, to rejoice in all the things that have been won for us because of His life given in our place and His victorious resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you. I thank you for this passage. I thank you for these truths. I thank you for this day. A day to remember, a day to uh, just, just celebrate. That we do not have to be those who grieve all the brokenness and, and, and darkness of this world as those who have no hope. But even in the face of suffering, we can always yet still be those who rejoice. I pray that you would make us to live as people of the resurrection, to realize the significance that we are those who possess resurrection life, and we possess it merely as a gift of your grace to us. Let us be humbled by this, let us rejoice in it, and let us just worship you for the great God and the merciful God that you have been to us. And I pray this in the glorious name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen.